I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. The television folk painter Bob Ross had a limited range, and I'm talking here about his voice. He always spoke on the soft side. Do you remember that? Never brash or loud or flashy. He had this contained spectrum. I think it kind of matched his color palette, actually. Do you remember anything brash or loud or flashy in the pigments he used? I think maybe his dynamic hair compensated for whatever limited palette he may have had elsewhere. Limited palette, interesting phrase. It is, of course, used all the time as a metaphor. But now I'm going to be talking about the actual pigments, the paints. Bob Ross used 13 colors, only 13. Yellow ochre, Prussian blue, dark sienna, Van Dyke brown, titanium white. There were eight others. I will not tick them all off for you. But throughout the run of his TV series, he kept to the same short list, and he had, presumably, his reasons. I want you now to think of a collection of over 2,500 pigments gathered from all over the world, pigments that no one is going to use on canvas. These are not being stored for eventual manufacture of paint. Think of this collection as a reference collection, a giant index to what is possible. Tints and shades and hues. It's called the Forbes Pigment Collection, housed by the Harvard Art Museums. The art museums, by the way, constitute the oldest fine arts research training and conservation facility in the United States. Dr. Narayan Kandekar can be found there as director of the Strauss Center for Conservation and Technical Studies and senior conservation scientist, also director of the Center for the Technical Study of Modern Art and curator of the Forbes Pigment Collection. He's on the line with us. Dr. Kandekar, welcome to Constant Wonder. Thank you. Thank you for that very kind introduction and thank you for having me on your show. That number that I cited, 2,500, uh, I kind of just tossed that out as though I knew what I was talking about. Do, should we round up or down? We keep adding to the collection, so it's getting closer to 3,000 at the moment. And uh, how do you go shopping for additions to the collection? I have no idea where you would go. So we keep an eye on the market. We look at pigments that are being made by manufacturers. There are people like BASF, Sun Chemicals various other pigment manufacturers. We contact them every year, every couple of years, and find out what is new on the market. And then we we buy a sample from them and add it to the collection. There are also people who are very focused on the production of pigments. So we've been in touch with a chap in England called Keith Edwards, an absolute living treasure with a, this amazing knowledge about historic pigment manufacture. And so we talk to him, we buy pigments that he's making for the um, for the market in the UK, and then we're contacted by people as well. So we were just contacted by somebody, Jennifer Manetta, who has um, some pigments that she gave to us from a visit to the Lascaux Caves in the early 1980s. She was walking around, the guy that discovered the caves, rediscovered the caves, gave her a chunk of pigment from the cave floor and she's held on to it and she decided that she wanted to give that to us. In Australia, there's Stephen Patterson who runs a, a paint company called Derivan. He has um, just collected samples of all the pigments that he uses in the manufacturer of the paint that he makes and is sending that to us. We've been in touch with a, a chap in Carthage. He is keeping alive the tradition of making Murex purple or Tyrian purple. And it's a very smelly, stinky business. I'm glad that he's doing it on the other side of the <laughs> um, And he's um, he is sending us samples of this amazing imperial purple that has been made for many thousands of years but is, is almost a lost art. So there are lots of different ways that, that pigments can come into the collection. We keep adding to it. It's, it's something that, that is important to, to keep up to date. So are you right there in the process of evaluating what comes in in the way of new acquisitions? Are you looking at these pigments and saying, oh, we already have something like that, or this is new, or this is just a little bit? You've got to size it up at some point. So when, when we're looking at things, it's, um, it's important to remember that each manufacturer does their own thing. So 
the same pigment made by a different manufacturer is going to be slightly different. And that tells you something about an artist's choice. We're, we're really interested in how artists make art. And so if we can identify a pigment to a specific manufacturer, then that tells us about the choices that the artist is making. And so we like to have a range of the same pigments. If you look at our collection of red ochres, for example, we have maybe 60 red ochres and they're all slightly different. And it shows the range of natural and synthetic red ochre, which you would think would be a standardized material. You think it would be, you know, a color, but it's not. It's a whole range of colors. And so, yeah, we want a collection of these variations to keep in the in the collection. Now, some of the activities that this collection is valuable for has to do with authenticating uh, who an artist may have been or maybe uh, flushing out a, a, a forgery, perhaps. I mean, you can look at the chemical composition of these, these paints and, and do some kind of forensic work. Absolutely. We look at the pigments and analyze the pigments to understand how a work of art is made. And then part of that work is seeing if those pigments were available during the artist's lifetime. So pigments have specific introduction dates, and a pigment like Prussian blue was introduced in 1704. We've got synthetic ultramarine blue, which was introduced, I believe, in 1826 or 1828. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. These dates are very, very specific. So if we find something in a work of art, if we find Prussian blue, we know that it couldn't have been made before 1704, for example. And that tells us if we're looking at a painting that was supposed to be painted by Botticelli, who was working a couple of centuries before 1704, then we know that that passage of blue paint was not applied by the artist. And then we can see how that blue paint interacts with the rest of the painting. If it's, if it's a, one of the lower levels of paint and other paint is on top of it, that means that it must have been applied later. And then we can start working out the history of the work of art and the changes that have happened and we can um, say you know, how much of it might be by the artist that it's supposed to be by or whether it's um, been misattributed and needs to be compared to later, later working artists. You did that so well because I hadn't even thought through the implications of multiple layers of pigment that somebody could have been touching it up or it, it, well, it may not be an out-and-out -out forgery. Somebody may have been doing earlier attempts at conservation. Exactly. And there are instances where that happens, where people will restore something and it will look like a work by somebody. But when you take that restoration off, you realize that it's something else. And so, you know, people will do this sometimes deceptively. Sometimes they'll do it to adjust the appearance so that a painting will appear more up to date or less, less dated. We don't know, necessarily know why the changes are made, but what we can do is separate the original from the restoration. And that, that's an important part of the, the work that we do as well. I want to get into the history of the collection and who Forbes was, how it all got started. Before we do that, though, I am so intrigued by this Carthaginian or Tyrian purple and, and the process of procuring that and the history of that. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, so... Tyrian purple is a, a very old pigment, and it comes from the murex mollusk. It comes from a gland in the mollusk, and the exudate from that gland is exposed to light, and it changes color. So it starts off a, a creamy colored liquid, and then on exposure to light, it turns red or purple, and it depends on the processing. So it's a very resource-intensive pigment. It takes many thousands of mollusks to make a gram of pigment and as a result the pigment itself has a lot of um a lot of status attached to it so the purple pigment which was the only naturally available purple for many thousands of years up until the mid-19th century was used for roma's senator's robes it was used for imperial garments and that status was attached to the pigment, and that was related to the amount of work that was, was done to 
accumulate this very small amount of purple pigment. So let's suppose that somebody procures uh, the, the, the pigment and it's very rare and they use it for whether it's textiles or wherever they may apply it. How stable is that going to be over centuries? Or is somebody ever going to be able to find, say, uh, a canvas with this kind of purple on it? Or I, I guess I'm asking about the stability of certain pigments and, and, and do they shift over time? Yeah, so th- this particular pigment is stable and it has been found, well, I've, I found it on one painting only in my, my entire career. And it was a painting from the late 13th century by the Master of St. Cecilia. That's a painting that's in the Getty Museum at the moment. And it was used on the banners behind the Virgin, and it says Mother of God. And so to be able to find it after many hundreds of years and identify it tells us that it is stable and it will last a long time. But it is exceedingly rare and it was a very expensive pigment, so it was only used for important passages in paintings. And to describe the the role of the Virgin in the Christian tradition tells you a lot about the reverence that that artist had for the, the figure that he was painting. That pigment itself is stable, but not every pigment is stable, and some are susceptible to change in light. Some will get darker, some will fade, some react with the binding medium and change, so not every pigment is stable over time. I've often wondered this because in graphic design in the modern era, people using computers and they're dealing with pixels and different colors, sometimes you just wonder in in the whole mix of things, if a red ochre that I'm seeing or a purple that I'm seeing today is going to be the same experience for somebody who was seeing it in the era of Rembrandt. Some of these um, pigments are incredibly stable. So the ochres you mentioned, very, very stable. But what does change is the color of the binding medium. So Rembrandt used linseed oil, for example, and that holds the pigment particle in place. And it becomes more yellow, it darkens over time. And so you'll get a change in the value of that paint passage from when Rembrandt applied it to what we're seeing now. And there can be accumulations of dirt and dirty varnish and all sorts of other you know, nicotine stains, all sorts of things that can accumulate on top of it. So what we're seeing when we look at a painting is the current condition of the original material. And that changes. You know, we have to accept that nothing lasts forever. Everything is in a constant source of flux. What we are seeing is centuries of change, sometimes subtle, sometimes dramatic. But that's part of the process. We can't stop time. And as conservators, what we try and do is slow it down. It's a, you know, ultimately a futile task, but we, we do our best. And the Forbes collection is uh, assembled on the premise that one can try to achieve some kind of stability. I mean, you want your pigments to stay put. Well, what what we have is a a collection of pigments, and we use them to identify the, the materials and techniques of artists. We want to understand how a work of art is made and then how it's changed over time, what it might have looked like originally, and so we, we use the pigments to answer those, those kinds of questions. And the pigments themselves have been exposed to light. They're in glass jars quite often. They've been exposed to light, and they have changed over time. And that gives us the information that we want. We want to know how pigments change. So we can look at vermilion, which has been exposed to a lot of light, and we can see that it turns this dark chocolatey brown color. It changes from this sort of beautiful orange to this brown. And so that's useful to understand. It's good to teach with as well. We can show students what it looks like. We can also look at, uh, I don't know, something like eosin, for example, which is a, a red pigment that Van Gogh used a lot. It fades very quickly. It's, a, it's very, very fugitive. But when you take the lid off the jar and look inside, you see that it's only the outside edge of the, the pigment that's faded. The contents of the jar are actually very vibrant, vibrant sort of pinky red colours. The museum has a lot of light protection. There's UV filters on all the windows and there's reduced light inside the museum building. But 
these changes still happen and that's part of the process and we can use that to our advantage when we're analyzing paintings. Dr. Narayan Kandekar is with us. He is the curator at the Forbes Pigment Collection at the Harvard Art Museums. We're going to chat a little bit more about the history of this collection. And and I I really want to hear a couple of stories of your personal hand involved in uh, trying to to, to preserve or conserve uh, an experience of the the Rothko materials, the murals. Uh, Quite a story there. Stay tuned to Constant Wonder. We'll be right back. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Thanks for being with us. We're visiting with Dr. Narayan Kandekar, who is the curator of the Forbes Pigment Collection. He serves as director of the Strauss Center for Conservation and Technical Studies and senior conservation scientist at the Harvard Art Museums. We, we were just talking, Dr. Kandekar, about, well, I, I had mentioned Rothko, and I know that you had something to do with trying to preserve the original kind of experience that a, a viewer of a certain mural would have had. Uh, what did you do? It, it, you didn't really have to touch the, the artwork, but you still changed the colors. Yeah, so we, we have a mural cycle that Mark Rothko painted. It's one of three mural cycles. The other ones are in Houston in a chapel. And the first set that he had painted was for the Four Seasons restaurant in New York that was never installed, and that, that was the subject of the play Red. So we, we have this middle group of murals that he painted, and they were in the Holyoke Centre for a long time. They were subjected to direct sunlight through these floor-to-ceiling windows, and they faded very badly. He used a, a pigment called lithol red, which was um, sensitive to the sunlight, and they, they faded and faded unevenly across the surface depending on where they were positioned in the room. Now, we wanted to give people the experience of what it was like to be in the room when he had painted the murals in the the mid-60s, but we couldn't touch the paintings themselves. They have a very delicate surface. They don't have a varnish on them, and it's a very thin paint that's soaked into the canvas. So actually touching the murals was not something that we could do. So what we landed on was this idea. And you know, when, when I say we, we, there's a team of us who were working on this. It's, it, I'm just a, a mouthpiece for the, the group. And what we did was decide that we could project a map of the missing color onto the surface of the painting. So we, we developed software that allowed us to do this. We worked out what the murals would have looked like. And that in itself was a big project. We then were able to, in a way, do a subtraction through complicated um, matrices to project a map of the missing color, which, when you look at the mural, combines with the existing color on the surface. And so you get this impression of what the murals looked like. Then if you do that for all five murals that were in the room, you got an impression of what the room looked like. And we were also able to talk to people who helped Mark Rothko install the murals in the, the 60s and find out what the paint color was like. He, he wanted this olive mustard colored wall covering. We couldn't track down the, a swatch of the wall covering, but what we were able to do was work out what it looked like. And so we recreated the sense of what this space was. And it gave this amazing feeling of being surrounded by these these paintings. And it was such a strong impression. I often actually would just go down there on my own and sit in there and, and appreciate the space. It was a privilege to work on these paintings, to be able to bring that back. But we're also able to give people the experience of what they looked like in the 60s. And then each day we would turn the, the projectors off and let people appreciate what the paintings look like now. So you could zoom ahead from what they looked like, switch the projectors off, zooming ahead 50 years to what they look like now, and people could could come in and, and experience that change. I'd never really thought this through before, but it sounds like what you are about, in part, is trying to preserve not so much an artifact, yes, that, but but to preserve what the artist's original intention may have been. The, the, the term of artist's intention gets bandied around a lot. 
And if the artist isn't there, it becomes increasingly difficult. We were lucky to have his adult children working with us and help us um, make sure that we were on the right track. So Christopher and Kate Rothko were incredibly helpful in this project. They loaned us material. They helped us. They came and looked at the work that we were doing and gave us their thoughts. So we were um, as close to, to having a conversation with Mark Rothko as we could get. But it's, it's an important thing to, to be able to understand what it was. We know that he was really invested in creating spaces. He would go and visit collectors and rearrange their sitting rooms so that the pictures, his pictures in their collection were displayed the way that he wanted them. And so, you know, we were very, very respectful of his vision as an artist and also I'm trying to recreate the space that he had set about. So we we did a, an awful lot of, of research to help us be as informed as we could be when we were doing this this project. Just briefly, who was Edward Forbes and what, when did the collection get going? And then I just want to do a, a quick survey of some of the more interesting materials and uh, the stories behind them. So, so Forbes. Edward Waldo Forbes was the director of the Harvard Art Museums from 1909 to 1944. He worked as a curator in the collection before then. And he came from a Boston, a well-known Boston family, a Boston Brahmin family. The Forbeses are prominent in every way. They've, they've been there at every step of American history, and they're still with us now. So um, John Kerry, for example, is a Forbes. There's a band called Pink Martini. China Forbes is a Forbes. Her sister is a filmmaker. So the, the Forbeses have been prominent and are still very prominent in American culture. Edward came out of that. His grandfather was Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he was passionate about art. He's described by his family as being a dreamy person, but I, I think really what he was was visionary. He said about changing how museums worked in this country. He professionalized the museum world, so he... he um, gave training to curators, to registrars. He changed the way that the field of conservation was practiced. And he also added collections of real art to the Harvard Art Museum. So before it was plaster casts and photographs and reproductions of, of works of art that were used to teach. And what he did was collect real works of art. And he would go to Europe and he was collecting at the same time as the Fricks and the Huntingtons, the Mellons, so he was there buying great works of art, bringing them back to Harvard for the students to learn from. And during this process, he was sometimes duped. You know, there were a lot of unscrupulous art dealers, as you, you might imagine. And he was, he was a careful buyer, but every so often he, he would buy something that was over-restored or maybe a fake. And he settled on an idea that if he could identify the pigments in a work of art, then he could tell whether it was real or fake. And that was the, the sort of the, the genesis of his um, collecting of pigments. So of all the curious pigments ever acquired for this Forbes collection, I, I got to think that the most scandalous of them all, or at least the most eyebrow-raising, it, it's just got to be a color sometimes referred to as mummy. What's the story with the pigment derived from mummy material? Yeah, so people make pigments out of the most unusual things. And I, I often say that pigments are made from um, animals, minerals, and vegetables. <laughs> and one of the, the more unusual materials is mummy. And that was it's been it's it's a it's been a pigment since the early sixteen hundreds. Um, we have a, a painting by a Spanish artist. Pantoja de la Cruz was the artist, and in his studio inventory, there is mummy listed in the pigments that he used. But it's a it's a pigment made from well, essentially the 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 resin that's on the bandages around an Egyptian mummy. And Egyptian mummies were used for all sorts of things. And it's not always human mummies either. There are a lot of animal mummies as well. I just wanted to to point out. But 
They were used um, to power locomotives for the Egyptian railways. They were unwrapped and the bandages were used to make newspapers in the mid-19th century. They they were used as a, a resource that was dug up and, and used. And artists didn't necessarily believe that the mummies were used to make mummy pigment. And Byrne Jones, the, the pre-Raphaelite artist in England, when he found out that mummies were indeed used, he, he thought it was a, a flight of fancy, but when he found out, he gave his tubes of mummy paint a Christian burial because he, he wanted to respect the mummies that were used in, in um, making his paint. That's a remarkable story. And uh, I had heard that mummies were ground into powders and used medicinally at some point, too, in history. So, uh, you know, uh, the longer I live, the, the less I'm surprised by these kinds of things. Dangerous pigments? Do you have materials that uh, uh, you have to be wary of? Yeah, so pigments are made of things that are beautiful colors, and beautiful colors are not always safe. So... Lead white, which is one of the most common pigments, is made from lead metal. We all know that lead is not good for us. That's a big problem. It's now illegal, isn't it? It can't be used for painting houses. It's hardly used at all now, but it was the predominant white pigment for, for many, many centuries. There are cadmium pigments, so cadmium yellow, cadmium red, cadmium orange. They were used, and surprisingly, they were, they were used in things like Lego up until the 1970s. These pigments are not good for us. There's emerald green, which Van Gogh used an awful lot, this incredibly bright, vivid green that he used as a background color quite often. It's got a copper and an arsenic center to it, so it's very toxic. And we see that around us as the the greenish color on pressure-treated timber, so it, it keeps insects from eating the wood in your playground, but it's also you know, it's not good if you chew on the wood yourself. Pigments are beautiful, but they have to be treated with a, a good deal of respect as well. I, I just want to think with you for a moment about the, the very idea of what a pigment might be, and, and I, I think as a, an example here, Vanta Black is a material that is a nanotechnology, I understand, that has been uh, figured out in just recent years. And it's not so much a powder or any kind of material. It's more like a shape that absorbs light, you know, a, a, a nanotube. And yeah. so can you, can you really call Vanta Black a pigment? So I think what, what you can do is call it a structural pigment. And it does absorb light. It, it, you know, the light goes into the nanotubes, bounces around, and then it's emitted as infrared energy. So the light goes in and it doesn't come out. And there are examples of other things around us that use structural, this, this kind of idea of structural um, behavior with light that um, we see around us. So peacock feathers are an example of that same kind, you know, the structure that absorbs light and, and refracts it around and then it comes out in these, this iridescence. Um, beetle wings are another one. The sky is another one. So there, there are these kinds of examples that are used. And we do find these things used in works of art. We're looking at an Indian miniature painting and beetle wings are used to depict the earrings on a, on a figure. So we know that artists are, are looking at these things and using them as a way to depict color in, in the work of art. And so I think we can consider them pigments, maybe a specific class of pigment, but, but definitely a pigment. And more recently, with Vantablack, there are people, there's a, a company in Massachusetts called Nanolab, and they're using Vantablack in paint. So they're, they're using the nanotubes, and it's being incorporated into a paint, and then a you can apply it and it produces an incredibly deep, rich, velvety texture. There's a watch company called um, H. Moser and they use Vanta Black applied to the surface of their watch dials. And so you, you have to be using Vanta Black as a pigment when you're applying it in that way. So yes, it is a pigment and no, it's not a pigment. 
<laughs> you know, um, I didn't necessarily want to talk about bovine urine, but let's do. There's, <laughs> there's. I sure. Yeah, why not? <laughs> so. Indian yellow is is one of the colors that everyone knows about because of Bob Ross, and you mentioned him earlier. But he used a modern synthetic alternative to Indian yellow. And Indian yellow is a pigment that had been outlawed by the British government in the early 20th century. And it was reportedly made by feeding cows mango leaves, collecting the urine and drying that. And this was reported by Mr. Mukherjee in the late 19th century, he was employed by Kew Gardens just outside of London. And he reported the manufacture of this. He collected samples of it. He collected the the material that was used to make the pigment. He sent it all back to Kew. And this was all reported. And so people were you know happy with that. In about 2000, Victoria Finlay went back to retrace Mr. Mukherjee's tracks and and find out more about Indian yellow, this, this sort of mysterious pigment, which was was very widely used. It's it's there in a lot of Indian manuscripts and Persian manuscripts. So we know it was widely used, it was traded, and Victoria wanted to understand more about the history of it. So she went back and um, couldn't find any trace or reference or oral history related to it. So she assumed that maybe that, you know, his story was not as accurate as, as everyone had thought it was. A bit more than 15 years from that, we have two colleagues, Erin um, Sugar and Rebecca Plurger at SUNY Buffalo, and they went around and visited all the existing balls of Indian yellow. We have one of them, and there are about a dozen of them around the world, and took samples of those, analysed them, they went to Kew, tracked down from the archives all the material that Mr. Mukherjee sent back in the 1880s and analysed those and found that there was evidence of animal urine and plant material. And so it seemed as though there was this chemical agreement with the story that, that had been told in the late 19th century and the evidence that we were finding now. So... It's had its ups and downs, These the story of Indian yellow, but it, it seems as though the story that we believed for a long time is in fact the real story. And that, in a way, is is reassuring, actually. It's it's not so good for the cows, I want to say, yeah, but yeah. It, it's, it's nice to know that um, people were in fact telling the truth and not fabricating stories to, to make an impression. Now, I think in conclusion, I just want to, to test your, your feelings about moving towards synthetic pigments. Is, there, is that a come down at all? Is, there, is that a disappointment to think that something could have been manufactured in an old traditional way and, and now chemists in a lab can concoct it and work their special alchemy? So I, I think there are two ways of looking at this. One is that Pigments that are made in a traditional way are still being made in that traditional way. If you look at cochineal, for example, you find it in makeup, you find it all over the place. It's still made from beetles that grow on on prickly pear. So some pigments are still made in the same way that they always have been made. But I I also want to say that, you know, I trained as a chemist myself and to be able to synthesize these colors is a wonderful thing as well. The quality of chemistry and synthetic organic chemistry that is used to manufacture the pigments that we see around us in car paints, in plastics, in furniture surfaces is extraordinary. So I, I don't think it's a come down. I think what it is, it's a, it's a new appreciation of what we can do. And if you look at it in a, a slightly different way. What you can do is go, these colors are everywhere and that every surface, every finish, everything that people create is affected by the colors that people have made. We're living in a, an amazingly designed environment that we've created for ourselves and it's elaborate and ornate and involved and it's taken a long time for people to get here. So I, I don't think that it's a 
a letdown. I think it's it allows us to appreciate what we have and be grateful for it, actually. That's, that's how I see it. Such a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Narayan Kandekar with us. He is director of the Strauss Center for Conservation and Technical Studies and senior conservation scientist, director of the Center for the Technical Study of Modern Art and curator of this collection we've been talking about, the Forbes Pigment Collection at the Harvard Art Museums. Color is light. Light is color. Black, not a color. It's the opposite, actually, because black is the absence of light. So if you want to make something really black, you need to do something that captures light, reflecting next to nothing. Well, the ultimate black has finally arrived, as we've just been talking about. It's sleek and stylish and, frankly, a little bit freaky. We're going to talk in greater depth about this thing called Vanta Black as Constant Wonder continues. Thanks for listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Imagine, if you can, the darkest material ever created, the blackest black. It would be, well, what would it be? I think it would be disorienting. You can't see the stuff. It's too dark. It's actually a material that consists of millions of nanotubes, and these nanotubes trap well over 99% of visible light. The result... I'm told, is an object that looks like nothing. Nothing's there. A picture with the the canvas cut out of the frame. Nothing. To learn more, I spoke with Ben Jensen, who is Chief Technical Officer of Surrey Nanosystems in the UK. We didn't set out to develop black materials. We were developing um, carbon nanotubes for a very specific application in semiconductor engineering, semiconductor um, electrical contacts within a microchip. And um, what what we'd done, um, I was working at the University of Surrey with some researchers there that had developed a technique for growing carbon nanotubes. Um, one of the limitations in the current carbon nanotube technology is that they require higher temperature to grow, and that means you can't use them in microchips because essentially you burn the microchip out at 700 centigrade. So we developed using my reactor development skills um, and the intellectual property developed at the university a method for growing carbon nanotubes at low temperature. And this was quite a torturous process. It took us a number of years, and we tried so many different things, and it just didn't work. And almost at the end of the project, when we'd run out of hope that we were going to solve this problem, we were kind of sitting in the pub one night, uh, myself and the researcher I was working with. And we just had this kind of moment where we discovered that if we turned everything on its head and literally turned the reactor upside down and the way of delivering the energy to it in a different way we would be able to drop the temperature. And very quickly, once we'd figured that out, that moment came, we figured it out, we moved forward, and very quickly we had a reactor that would work. And we dropped the temperature down to something that was compatible semiconductor processing. What we didn't realize at the time, and this was absolutely critical and and, and very, very interesting, was that the reactor technology that we'd developed would lend itself to growing almost perfectly black materials. And at the time, we weren't involved in that. But one day, we had uh, an organization in in the UK called the National Physical Laboratory came along to us and said they'd read some of the publications on the low-temperature work we'd done, and could we perhaps turn that to making black bodies for for satellite calibration camera systems? And, of course, we said, yes, no problem. This will be really easy to do. It's only transferring it from this to a metal. Um, Actually, it was torture trying to create this process and transfer it to a metal but we got there and what we didn't realize was that the reactor was so suited to growing these super black materials that we would create at the time what was the world's blackest material and it was an aligned carbon nanotube array and it was an almost perfect absorber in the visible spectrum of light and what was really interesting about it is that it's not the blackness of something on its own it's that the material retains the blackness from all viewing angles. Okay, so most people would be used to look at something that's quite black and they will go, okay, yeah, that looks really black. But if you tip it up at, let's say, 45 degrees, you'll see that it starts to reflect. Okay, and that's why we make sense of shape around us. It's the way light interacts with a, a surface 
um, at different angles in the way our eyes perceive it, and that's how we see the world around us, okay? But with these materials, what's so weird and unique about them, as well as their blackness, is that they have the same level of absorption from all different viewing angles. So when you put a material like this onto a three-dimensional surface, all of a sudden your perception of the object and the dimensionality and how it occupies space in front of you is changed and challenged because we never evolved to see light and super black surfaces that reflect absolutely nothing back to our eyes. We just didn't, we didn't, it, that, that path in evolution didn't exist. We're used to, as you described um, earlier on, used to being in a cave with no light, and we used to being in areas with sufficient light to make our surrounding, make out our surroundings. But when you put the two together, so you have an area of absolute zero light reflecting back to your eyes, surrounded by lit surfaces, i.e. the environment around you, all of a sudden your brain becomes quite confused by what it sees because you're not used to making sense of objects in that way. And, and, and things start to literally look like it's a bad Photoshop in real-time space in front of your eyes. And, and it's interesting, when people see these materials, the first thing they want to do is reach out and touch it to see if it's real. It doesn't matter what you say to them, you say, please don't touch the first thing they want to do is interact with it because it's something your brain hasn't seen before. There's so much swirling in my mind right now from everything you've said. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking you were 12 when you first got that scientific itch, and I've got a 12-year-old. And if I were to try to explain to my 12-year-old what you've just told me, I'd have to start explaining to him what the carbon nanotubes are. And I've, I've bumped into this before. I haven't touched them. I've just bumped into the idea. And I've, I've heard that they're just these microscopic, teeny tiny little tubes, maybe as small as, I'm thinking of like a little cylinder that its, it's uh, thickness of the, of the material itself might be just an atom in, in, in thickness. Am, am, are we talking the same thing? Yeah, we certainly are. So you can imagine a carbon nanotube as, as like a drinking straw. Okay, and the drinking straw may be capped at one end, um, and the wall of the drinking straw is roughly an atom thick. And so you can have something called a single wall carbon nanotube, so that's the single drinking straw, or you can have something called a multi wall carbon nanotube, where you've got maybe five or six drinking straws stacked inside each other. Um, and so the, these are absolutely tiny. So take a hair in your head and split it three to five thousand times. And one of the strands that's left is the size of one of these carbon nanotubes. So it's engineering on an absolutely tiny scale. Um, impossible to see, but the effects you can see when you see the absolute absence of light. And, and the process that you devised was one to be able to generate these things. You used the verb to grow them. You, you grew nanotubes at lower temperatures than it had ever been done before. Yes, that's correct. That, that, that's where the technology started. And then you stumbled across the idea that these nanotubes were really, really, really black, which is to say they're kind of like a sponge in that when the light comes down, it doesn't bounce off the light. The photons don't bounce back, but they get, I guess, sucked down into the straws. That's correct. So what happens? So you've got, if you could imagine, it's like walking in a field of grass, black grass, but the grass is 3,000 feet tall, Okay. So you imagine walking along the bottom of that grass, how dark it would be. It's like walking in a forest in the middle of the night. And, and what happens, each blade of grass is equivalent of a nanotube, okay? And there's about a billion of them per square centimeter. So there's a, it seems like a lot, but actually there's quite a bit of optical space between each carbon nanotube. And when the photons come in, they come in and they get trapped between the carbon nanotubes and they bounce around multiple times until they're absorbed and then distributed as heat. And, and so the only light that gets reflected back to you is the light that hits the tips of the tubes that doesn't get into the forest. And that's why the reflection is so low from these materials and you get so little light sent back to your eyes. Well, now we have to talk about heat, because if I walk on a very hot asphalt road, that asphalt road, even if it's very dark and black to my eye, it's still a reflective surface, and some of those photons are bouncing back up into the sky. You, I would imagine that this black surface of yours could get very, very hot. Um, logically, you would think so. 
Um, and it gets a little bit hotter. But if you look at, let's say, um, the solar absorption for something like asphalt, which may be 95% absorbing when it's new, these materials are over 99. So it's only 4, 4.5% plus more absorbing than the asphalt. Okay? But the level of absorption for how it looks to your eyes is completely different. But the other thing is that they're almost perfect black bodies. So these materials are so black that they re-radiate when they're above the surrounding ambient temperature. So let's say you've got a part that's been coated with a, a, a super black material and that's getting hot in the sunlight and it becomes hotter than its surrounding environment. That will re-radiate some of that energy back into the environment within the infrared spectrum and therefore help cool itself. And this is the principle used on spacecraft radiators to cool into deep space because they have no air to transfer heat through to. So they use what you call black body surfaces to radiate excess heat from the satellite out into space. So they get hotter a little bit, but not appreciably so. Now, I'm going to paint a picture that comes from the website of your operation, Surrey Nanosystems, there's a picture of some aluminum foil that's been crumpled up. And if you think about a crumpled piece of aluminum foil, uh, like mountains and valleys and crevices and canyons and that sort of a thing, once it's all wrinkled, and then the, the part of that uh, aluminum foil piece ha has had this Vanta black material, these nanotubes applied to it. And even on the website, even for a camera taking its picture, it seems to have no dimensions. It seems to be just empty space. Uh, it's, it's a stunning thing to look at. Uh, a three-dimensional object coated with this material, if you could see it at all, would seem two-dimensional? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so w what's going on there is that the way we, as, as I mentioned before, the way we make sense of shape is how light interacts with the surface. And where you have a surface that has no reflection back to your eyes from any angle, you just see that as a flat two-dimensional surface. What, what, what's unfortunate is that the dynamic range of a camera and, a, and, a, and an LCD monitor just can't show you what it looks like in reality. Uh, and the amazing thing is, is when you go up to it and you go closer and closer and you know you're trying to look at it and put your eyes really up against it, you still see nothing. It's because there's absolutely nothing coming back that your eyes are sensitive enough to see. Um, and so when you see it, it just looks like there's this bad Photoshop in space sitting in front of you, like someone's cut something out. And you're looking at it, trying to make sense of the detail and what's there. And there is nothing there for your eyes to see. So the interesting thing is that when you know what's there, you try to paint a picture in your mind. Your mind tries to fill in the missing detail. So we, we ran some interesting experiments on our, on our YouTube channel where we had a, um, a round um, ball passing over a super black surface. And it's funny, in the beginning, people say, no, they can't see it, they don't know what it is. But once they know what's there, then all of a sudden they think they can see it. And, and that's because your mind's putting information in there because it knows what it's expecting to see. But the reality is, if you look at this um, in the real world and not on the screen, and you watch it, it's fascinating to see how people respond to it. Really, really fascinating, because it's just something you've never experienced before. Let's talk about the importance of this in terms of why it would be marketable, why anybody would want the material. You've mentioned space, but right down here on Earth, who would customers be who would want this kind of a coating to put on any kind of material? Um, that's a very good question, uh, and it, it's something that it's hidden from most of us. They don't realize that there's issues that these materials solve. Now, the first coating we developed, as we said, was a, a grown coating, uh, an aligned carbon nanotube coating, but the technology has moved forward now into spray-type coatings where we produce almost the same result. And these coatings are used in, in space applications, in terrestrial applications such as camera lenses, such as automotive safety systems. Um, so for an example, if you want to get a, a much better picture in bright light, if you're shooting a film or, or shooting um, uh, high quality images, um, normally you're used to camera hoods to prevent light getting into the lens system. We now use this technology in camera lenses um, to prevent light bouncing around inside the system, causing lens flare and ghosting. 
um, and, and giving much better contrast to the images. So um, when these products are launched into the market, you'll be able to get much higher contrast pictures that are, 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 are much clearer with less picture washout in very bright sunlight shooting or in studio shooting where there's bright lights. That's a really, really interesting application. Other areas are in automotive sensing, system, sensing systems. So we're all hearing about cars that are driving themselves, cars that are, are helping people constantly with safety systems. All those cars use camera systems and LIDAR systems, so laser radar type systems. And they're all that have the potential to be impacted by sunlight low on the horizon getting into the sensor causing um, potential safety issues um, or issues for the driver taking control or a number of different areas or even in the case of heads-up displays where you're getting ghost artifacts from the sunlight on the screen. So the coatings are used in those areas to improve safety quality within the imaging system and in the visual visualization system and as vehicles become more and more automated then these sensor systems are more and more critical to the safety of the passenger and the operation of the vehicle so improving the performance in sunlight is absolutely critical for those for, for those types of sensor systems this this is not a material that one day is going to be in say a, a paint tube that a somebody who who paints on canvas is going to be able to just squeeze it out of a tube i don't think no sadly not because it, it's not although although we call it a paint and it's sprayed down um the the materials that we create today and some of them are nanotube based and some of them are non nanotube based um the 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 material if you look at it under a scanning electron microscope would actually look like a coral reef at the nanoscale and you can't create that just by painting it onto a surface. The technique to create it is quite complex and involves plasma systems, iron bombardment, and some quite complex substitution chemistry. Um, so it's not something that we would see would be available for, for someone to go down into, into the town and buy a spray can of this to coat their bike with it. Um, the technology is uh, many years away from potentially being at that state. Um, so at the moment, um, the technology is supplied by the company, by specialist trained scientists or technicians if they're using some of the other non-nanotube coatings, which are straight sprays. Um, but it's not at the state where we would imagine it to be used by the general public in their applications. Ben Jensen, Chief Technical Officer of Surrey Nanosystems in the UK, that's the company that created this phenomenal material that isn't a color. It robs light from right before your eyes. You don't get it back except as heat. It's called Vanta Black. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.